BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Wow, looking at the Financial Times, this amazing story about this Chinese espionage campaign that was, uh, there was a, there were four specific vulnerabilities in the Microsoft Exchange server software or system, or I don't know the exact proper technical term here, but basically it allowed Chinese hackers to get inside your email if you're using a Microsoft Exchange server. This was revealed last week. And now criminal gangs are jumping into the act now that they know how to get into people's email. It has turned into an international, well, this is the first paragraph from the Financial Times. It quote, quote, has escalated into a devastating global hacking free-for-all that is claiming tens of thousands of business and public sector victims. So, uh, scary stuff. You know, it's just like there's a fire hose and there's all this stuff going on and it's really worth talking about. America needs a right to vote. We're discovering, is that the right word? I think it's been obvious all along that while the formal Jim Crow laws that enforced segregation right up until the 19, well, really the 1960s, the mid 1960s are gone, that Jim Crow never really left, and that now Georgia just brought it back in a big way. I'm going to dig into that in just a moment. What's up with Trump? He's telling Republicans to send money to him instead of the GOP. We'll dig into that in about 20 minutes. But I want to start out with, you know, this week, Georgia has now passed, I don't believe the governor has signed them yet, but the these two pieces of legislation that would end automatic voter registration in the state, would ban drop boxes for absentee ballots, would radically cut back mail-in voting, and there's an amazing piece to this, and would make illegal the whole souls to the polls thing on on some Sundays. This is where African Americans are 10 times more likely to vote than white people on Sundays because going after church and all this kind of stuff. The Georgia legislature just outlawed that. And, and Georgia is not unique in this, by the way. There are over 200 pieces of legislation in 40 states to do this kind of thing, to make it harder to vote, to restrict voting. The governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, just signed a piece of legislation. I mean, now that's law taking in Iowa. It used to be there was 40 days of early voting. And then the Republicans, a couple of years back, cut that down to 29 days. Uh, now they've cut it down to 20 days, and they're putting all kinds of additional restrictions on, as well as restricting mail-in voting. It's like, we need a right to vote. 
we need an absolute right to vote. And we don't have one in the United States. And that's why these states can get away with this kind of stuff. Uh, this is, you know, this is a legacy of slavery and misogyny at the very beginning. They didn't want to say all men have a right to vote because that would have included black men. They didn't want to say all people because that would have included women. And so there just was never a right to vote in our Constitution. It was always a privilege and it was left up to the, to the states. And look at what the red states are doing. You know, yeah, we're, we're going to force down in Georgia. We're going to force people to stand in line for literally 11 hours if they want to vote. Oh, and if somebody wants to bring you a bottle of water or a slice of pizza, they go to prison. That's also in this new legislation. Because we don't have a right to vote, we've had 30 million registered voters removed from the voting rolls since 2014. And so when people show up in red states and they're not on the voting rolls, they're given a provisional ballot, which is only counted if there's a lawsuit. Because we don't have a right to vote back in the 60s, William Rehnquist was able to organize Operation Eagle Eye in uh, Arizona, where he, a big bear of a guy, a lawyer, he and other white guys, sometimes uniformed white guys, they drew heavily from local sheriff's offices, would go to the polling places around Phoenix that were largely black, Hispanic, or Native American and loudly challenge their right to vote, scare people away. Because we don't have a right to vote, Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, was able to prevent almost a million Floridians from voting because they owed fines to the government. Haven't paid your parking tickets? You're in big trouble. Because we don't have a right to vote, Louis DeJoy could destroy the post office just in time for election day and not suffer any consequences. It wasn't against the law. Because we don't have a right to vote back in 2000, Jeb Bush, governor of Florida, was able to get a felon list from Texas from his brother, Texas Governor George W. Bush, and use that felon list to compare with the voting list in Florida, knowing that African-American names are a much smaller name pool than white names who, uh, you know, uh, white people in America draw from all kinds of different language groups across Europe. You know, uh, the, the Cyrillic languages, the Russian and the Slavic languages, and, and Polish and Greek and, and Spanish and German and every, all that kind of stuff. Whereas most African American names in the United States tend to come from either they follow the names of American presidents or they follow the names of English, Scotch, or Irish immigrants to the United States who were slaveholders back in the day. So, gee, if you take a list of Texas felons, about half of whom are black or Hispanic, if you take a list of Texas felons and compare it with a list of Florida voters, you're going to identify, and in this case, Jeb Bush did, 90,000 African Americans in Florida. They knocked them off the voting rolls so that George W. Bush could, quote, win Florida by 537 votes. If, because we don't have a right to vote, Mike DeWine, the governor of Ohio, wanted to throw people off if they hadn't voted in the previous election. That went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said, fine, go ahead, no problem. Especially if they didn't mail back a postcard. Because we don't have a right to vote, the Republicans in red states are pushing through legislation that says that if you don't get an ID that isn't one that you would normally use, you can't vote. I mean, this is how crazy it gets. Judd Legum over at popular.info laid out the whole thing with Georgia here. This is amazing. 
in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, they noted that uh, Governor Sonny Perdue, this is back in 2005, April 23, 2005, you know, 16 years ago, Governor Sonny Perdue, Republican, signed into law a bill that would allow people to vote absentee without an excuse and without ID. Political observers, I'm quoting the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, political observers say Republicans tend to benefit the most from absentee balloting. And for 15 years, that was true, notes Judd over at popular.info. Then in the 2020 presidential election, everything changed. Although white voters still made up a majority of male voters, reports the ACJ, their share of the vote by mail electorate dropped from 67% in 2016 to 54% in 2020. The black share, meanwhile, surged from 23 to, to 31%. Nearly a third of black voters cast their ballots by mail in 2020. Only 24% of white people. So the Georgia Senate passed an end to at no excuse absentee voting, 29 to 20 on a party line vote. Now, if you live in Georgia and you want to vote by mail, you must be in the military. You must be observing a religious holiday. You, and I don't know of any religious holidays on a Tuesday. You must be caring for someone with a disability or you must be required to work, quote, for the protection of the health, life, or safety of the public during the entire time the polls are open. Also, you have to include your uh, a photo stat of your ID. Like, yeah, a lot of people have copy machines at home, right? Republicans back 16 years ago argued that Voting by mail was safer because it produced a paper trail. That literally was the argument that they used. Now they're saying, no, it's not safe anymore. Not safe. Black people are doing it. I mean, we need a right to vote in America. This is the Tom Hartman Program. If they want to take away your home or your gun, they got to go to court. If they want to take away your vote, they just do it. We need a right to vote in America. Jared in Downington, Pennsylvania. Hey, Jared, what's up? Well, you talk a lot about, you know, we need a right to vote, Tom, and we do. Every single person in this country needs to have a representative voice in democracy. The problem is the so-called Democratic Party does not want everybody the right Don't even to vote. try, Jared. And they, they just passed no, H.R. No, no, no. 1. Have you even bothered to look they, at it? Oh, and what about the Senate with the filibuster? And when it gets there, what about us? It's not the, Demo- the Democratic or- Party is not opposed to ending this, the filibuster. You've got about somewhere between six and ten Democratic senators who are opposed to ending the filibuster. You've got uh, far more than that who are in favor of ending the filibuster. And then you've got, I think, 13 or 14 Democratic senators that we don't know what their opinion is. So why haven't they made an exception and said, look, we're going to end the filibuster for voting rights and we're going to do it now, and I just want to get rid of the filibuster all away, but why haven't they done it yet? What's going on here? Because this is politics, and in politics, you can't do things until you have a substantial base of public support. And so my prediction, Jared, of what's going to happen is that when H.R. 1 comes up for consideration in the Senate, when Chuck Schumer finally drops that bill, which will probably be next week, you're going to see a Republican or multiple Republicans filibuster it. And at that point, the doo-doo is going to hit the fan, as they say. And that's going to stir that public debate that is going to provide the Democrats with the space 
to do away with or change the filibuster. My prediction is they're going to say, okay, fine, we'll keep the filibuster, but you've got to have your 40 people sitting in the Senate, you know, all the time, and somebody has to be continuously talking. And when the talking ends or the 39th or the 40th person leaves and there's only 39 people in there, then we hold a vote and we either pass or fail the legislation. You know, let's go to a Jimmy Stewart filibuster. It's quite clear to me, Jared, that that's the Democrats' strategy. And it's not just clear to me. I mean, read half a dozen op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post in the last week saying the same thing. Well, I mean, I hope you're right. And I, I do want them to pass things. I really do. I wanted there to be like a, almost like a coup when they got in and just like pass everything, pass like so much legislation it would just, you know, overwhelm the system. We have to do something about voting rights. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, Republicans in Georgia. I mean, why, why isn't Biden, you know, just like having the DOJ go down there and just arrest these people for doing this kind of stuff? This is illegal. Well, because what this they haven't done is, is not illegal yet. But H.R. 1 would make a lot of what they just passed illegal. It would overrule it. It would override it. And that's why H.R. 1 is a big deal. H.R. 1 sets national standards for voting. It sets national standards for early voting. It would undo the Republicans' effort in Georgia to outlaw souls to the polls, for example. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in H.R. 1. Jared, just keep in mind, the number one message that was delivered in the 2016 election from Russian trolls and apparently trolls from several other countries, but we, you know, we've got the documentation on the Russian trolls, to American voters was there's no difference between the Republican and Democratic Party. There is, in fact, a huge difference. Jared, thank you for the call. So, you know, number one, I think it's fairly obvious we need an absolute affirmative right to vote. And I think that H.R. 1 is a huge step in that direction, although I'd like to see it taken even a step beyond that and go to a constitutional amendment. You know, just lay it out. So if you have thoughts on that, I, you know, I think that there's probably a consensus right across the board that we all agree on this. And the one last question that I would add with regard to this is the Republicans are engaging in a huge experiment here. I mean, they're making it harder to vote. And yeah, for people, you know, traditionally the way this is played out, I, I used to live, Louise and I lived in Georgia for 13 years. And we lived in Cobb County and then in Marietta. And then we moved to Roswell, which is a little farther north, which I think is still in Cobb County. I'm not, I don't recall. But I know when we lived in Marietta, our federal representative was Newt Gingrich. <laughs> I remember that well. And having lived there, you know, I was living in a white neighborhood, largely white neighborhood, and I never had to wait more than 10 minutes to vote. I'm not sure I ever had to wait more than five minutes to vote. I know I've been saying for years 15 minutes, but I mean, literally my whole entire life. And yet there were parts, I mean, just drive 10 miles down the road into Atlanta or into the black parts of Cobb County of Marietta, where I lived, and you could wait eight hours or 10 hours or 12 hours to vote. So this is traditionally how Republicans have gamed the system, and now they're making it illegal to even bring water or pizza to somebody standing in a 10-hour line to vote. They just, you know, this is part of the legislation that they just passed. So here's the question. If their efforts to make it harder to vote also make it harder for white people to vote, which 
I'm guessing they're fairly carefully calibrated to try not to do that by having more voting machines in the white suburbs and fewer voting machines in black neighborhoods, which is how they've always done it. But if HR1 passes, they can't do that anymore. HR1 requires the same number, you know, the voting machines be allocated based on population, not based on race, essentially, which is how the Republican Party has been doing it all over the country for, you know, ever. So is it possible that these laws are actually going to blow up in their face, that they're going to backfire on them? So number one. Number two, Donald Trump, this is fascinating. Last week, you'll recall, Donald Trump sent a cease and desist, a lawyer letter to the RNC, the Republican National Committee, the National National Republican Senatorial Committee, the NRSC, and the National Republican Congressional Committee, the NRCC telling them that they may no longer use his name or his image in any kind of fundraising. Now he has doubled down. He sent out his equivalent of a tweet. It's a statement by Donald J. Trump, 45th president of the United States of America. In other words, he's not even identifying himself as the ex-president, right? Here's what he said. No more money for rhinos. They do nothing but hurt the Republican Party and our great voting base. They will never lead us to greatness. Send your donation to SaveAmericaPAC at DonaldJTrump.com. We will bring it all back stronger than ever before. So now he is saying, send your money to me instead of Republicans. Maggie Haberman, uh, the reporter at the New York Times, she says, uh, Trump is trying to set himself up as the place where money for Republicans should go. Rick Hassan, he's an election law expert, he pointed out on Twitter. He said, and, and also to personally enrich himself through very loose requirements for spending that apply to leadership packs. And these leadership packs, yes, you can use that money yourself. You can keep that money. You can, you, I mean, you can, pay, you can pay your buddies. You can pay your employees with that money. Trump has, as far as we know, he has raised $31 million so far for his leadership PAC, in addition to the $300 million that he's raised since he lost the election for his other PACs. I mean, this is pretty mind-boggling. Do you think he's going to get away with it? How will the Republican Party survive this? I mean, essentially, the choice that the, the, that the Republican Party has right now, if, if, if they let Trump get away with this stuff, is... Either the, the party becomes, as large parts of it already have, but either the par- party essentially officially becomes a cult-worshipping group surround, you know, centered on the personality, image, and name of Donald J. Trump. Or they say, sorry, Donald, see you later, sayonara, and go back to being just the party of billionaires and big business, as they were before Trump. And I don't know how this is going to play out. Uh, Perhaps you have some insights into it. My guess is that this is going to fracture the party, even worse than it is already. That this is probably going to speed up the number of Republicans who are starting to step away from Trump rather than speed up the embrace of him. But we'll see. And we have to keep in mind and I'll go through this in just very short form after the break, just exactly how Trump's presidency played out. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. 
NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. For our book club today, we're reading Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot. This is from Chapter 3, Don't Look Back. The political history of the second half of the 20th century could be summarized as the conflict between its two great narratives, neoliberalism and social democracy. Social democracy in this era, whose story I briefly summarized in Chapter 1, acquired much of its power and coherence from the thinking of one remarkable man. Across four decades, John Maynard Keynes's work dominated economic thought and practice. During the period the French called the Trente Glorious, 1945 to 1975, his prescriptions are widely credited with reviving economies and distributing their benefits. That, that they remain more or less the only mainstream alternative to neoliberalism today reveals a remarkable stagnation of both thought and ambition. The first and most obvious problem with an attempt to use Keynesian social democracy as a core political narrative is that the story is more than 80 years old. Political stories need to be renewed. If politics does not feel fresh, it struggles to kindle the imaginative excitement from which hope arises. The second problem is that the surviving enthusiasm for Keynes among mainstream parties is highly selective. It has been reduced in most cases to lowering interest rates when economies are sluggish and engaging in tepid counter-cyclical public spending, which means injecting public money into the economy when unemployment is high or recession threatens. Other Keynesian measures, such as raising taxes when an economy grows quickly to dampen the boom-bust cycle, the fixed exchange rate system, capital controls, and a self-balancing global banking system, an international clearing union, all of which Keynes saw as essential complements to these policies, have been discarded and forgotten. Not only does this ensure that the rich old story has been reduced to two thin chapters, whose loss of context destroys their narrative power, but the absence of other Keynesian measures, as well as changed global circumstances, weakens the effectiveness of the remaining elements of policy. Let me give you an example. In 2009, in the hope of boosting the economy in the wake of the financial crash, the British government spent £300 million on stimulating sales of new cars. Under its scrappage scheme, if car owners traded in their old vehicles for new ones, the government, with the help of manufacturers, knocked £2,000 off the price. This lavish program was partly justified as an environmental measure, though it was clear from the outset that it would lead to a rise in environmental impacts as the materials and energies used in manufacturing new cars outweigh any likely savings from better fuel economy. Its primary purpose was to boost British car assembly plants and protect the jobs 
of their workers. But European state aid rules forbade such schemes from discriminating between cars made in Britain and cars made abroad. British car parts assembled only some 15% of the vehicles sold in that country, which meant that 85% of the benefit went to car plants in Germany, Japan, and other manufacturing nations. We could see this spending as foreign aid to some of the world's richest nations. The current pattern of globalization, which developed partly as a result of abandoning the fixed exchange rates and capital controls that Keynes advocated, ensures that this problem is to some extent repeated wherever Keynesian stimulus spending is applied. It might lead to a general, if scarcely detectable, global economic uplift, but the domestic impact will necessarily be weaker than Keynes intended. This issue is compounded by the phenomena of job-free growth, caused in part by the automation now spreading into almost every economic sector. Today, governments pulled the starter cord, spending public money and cutting interest rates, that ignited the economy and unemployment in the past, only to discover that it snaps before the motor fires. Two feeble measures, removed from the rich framework of thought and narrative in which they were once embedded, have little chance of sustaining a political revival. Another issue is that the troubles that beset the Keynesian model in the 1970s have not disappeared. While the oil embargo of 73 was the immediate trigger for the lethal combination of high inflation and high unemployment, called stagflation back then, that Keynesian policies were almost powerless to counteract, problems of the system had been mounting for years. Falling productivity and rising costs push inflation, wages and prices pursuing each other upwards, were already beginning to erode support for Keynesian economics. Most importantly, perhaps, the program had buckled in response to the political demands of capital. Strong financial regulations and controls on the movement of money began to weaken in the 1950s as governments started to liberalize financial markets. Richard Nixon's decision in 71 to suspend the convertibility of dollars into gold destroyed the system of fixed exchange rates on which much of the success of Keynes' policies depended. The capital controls introduced to prevent financiers and speculators from sucking money out of balanced Keynesian economies collapsed. Today, it's hard to find a mainstream politician in Europe or the Anglophone nations, including those who call themselves Keynesians, prepared to call for their reintroduction. We cannot hope that the strategies deployed by global finance that helped to destroy the efficacy of Keynes' measures in the 70s will be unlearned. If the soft Keynesianism proposed by opponents of neoliberalism is to amount to anything but tinkering, it has to confront a wider set of challenges than most of its advocates have yet been prepared to acknowledge. But perhaps the biggest problem residual Keynesianism confronts in the 21st century is that when it does work, it collides headfirst with the environmental crisis. The book Out of the Wreckage by George Monbiot. So just a couple of bullet points here before I pick up your phone calls, and you may want to comment on any of these things. Great thread, Laura, pour me a drink over at DU. Donald Trump, as president, directly and indirectly caused half a million American deaths, broke records for job loss and national debt, impeached twice, the first time in history, tried to bribe a foreign government to encourage violent followers to attack the Capitol, and five people died, lost the House for the Republican Party, lost the Senate for the Republican Party, lost the White House for the Republican Party, and this is the guy who is claiming that now all the money should go to him instead of to the Republican Party, and the Republicans are going to be okay with this? Which raises a whole nother question, which Media Matters is pointing out over at MediaMatters.org, which is that the Fox News is all over the idea that, well, maybe these vaccines aren't so great after all. 
which is kind of weird. I, I, I got a text message yesterday from a friend of mine who is a right-wing commentator, a guy, he's been on my show a number of times. And he was like, you know, talking about, well, that Operation Warp Speed sure did work out well, right? Like Trump is taking credit. It was in the context of something else. He was asking a question about, you know, somebody's contact information. And then he kind of threw that in. And I was like, yeah, okay. Yeah, they, they know how to write a check. I thought Dolly Parton and a Turkish couple who lived in Germany were responsible for the vaccine. But what do I know? But in any case, and so you would think that Trump followers would want Trump to take credit for the success of these vaccines, but no. Media Matters is pointing out that uh, Sean Hannity told his audience he's, quote, beginning to have doubts about whether he'll get vaccinated. Laura Ingram interviewed a notorious anti-vaxxer on her podcast last week, Tucker Carlson's, I'm quoting from uh, MediaMatters.org, Tucker Carlson's Monday monologue was a rant about how experts are, quote, clearly lying, end quote, about COVID-19 vaccines and that their safety and efficacy are open questions that, quote, you're not allowed to ask. Really? And what's the result of this? The result of this is that when they ask Democrats, are you going to get vaccinated if a vaccine's available? Only 5% of Democrats say no. When they ask Republicans if you're going to get vaccinated when a vaccine becomes available, 40% say no. Everybody's talking about you know vaccine reluctance in the black community. It's not the black community. It's the Republicans who are getting skitzy about taking the vaccine. Why? Well, something could have something to do with Donald Trump hiding the fact that he and Melania got their vaccine shots at the White House and never told anybody about it. They're still trying to keep it a secret and keep it out of the news. He will not discuss it. So what's the deal? I mean, in Putnam County, Missouri, this, this is one of the stories. This uh, Mark Sumner is writing about this over at Daily Coast. He says, in Putnam County, Missouri, where, the vaccine, where a vaccine event saw 1,500 doses of vaccine go unused and 150 get thrown away, it was a county that voted 84% for Trump. As KSKD reports, more vaccine is finally being shifted to St. Louis and Kansas City. We do recognize, uh, this is the governor, Mike Parsons, the Republican governor of Missouri. He says, we do recognize that some Missourians are less interested in receiving a vaccine than others. Vaccine interest is often highest in urban populations. Right. So let me add to this question about, you know, how are the Republicans going to respond to Trump trying to take over their party and trying to take all the money from their party? The kind of follow on question, what happens when the Republican Party starts dying out in droves? Keep in mind, it was April 7th was when, you know, the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, uh, Fox News, ABC, CBS and NBC all on April 7th of last year, all of them reported on the same day this huge study that showed that at that point in time, on April 7th, black people and Hispanic people, but particularly black people, were more likely to get coronavirus because so many more of them as a, as a proportion of their population were frontline workers and were more likely to die from it. And that was the point. That week, literally that week, that, the, the seven days following April 7th, and I've written about this, and it's got all the links to everything, to, to Limbaugh and everybody else. In that one week, the entire right wing did a screeching U-turn. Keep in mind, it was just five weeks earlier that Trump had declared a shutdown nationwide. They did this screeching U-turn to say, oh, we don't need a shutdown. We don't need us thinking shutdown. 
And that was the point at which Donald Trump started minimizing the virus and saying, oh, it's just like a miracle, it's gonna vanish, and don't worry, and everything's gonna be fine, and you just need to get back to work. Right. So where is this gonna go? And uh, Ronnie in New, New Berlin, Wisconsin. Hey, Ronnie, what's on your mind today? Hi there, thanks for taking my call. Something that you were saying punched me in the gut, but also turned on a light. I'm fortunate enough to be able to see my mom every Sunday because I meet her at church. And so a couple of times I have asked her about getting vaccinated and she's always like, oh, uh, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think so. And I was lucky enough to just get my first shot this past week. So uh, I told her that. And um, one of the other pastors came over and, and he said, oh, I got my shot, too. We're all fully vaccinated here, um, uh, all the pastors. And I said, that's fantastic. And he said, Eunice, are you going to get vaccinated? And she's like, no, absolutely not. And it's because she doesn't trust the government. And I'm like, what? And she goes, nope, nope, it's, it's too fast. Uh, I don't trust the government. I said, it's science, mom. It's medicine. And uh, she said, I don't trust them either. And wow. now that you said that Fox News is doing this, she is a total Fox Newser. And it makes me really sad. Oh you know, she had said, I'm 86. You know, if, if I'm going to die, you know, I've had a good life. And I go, but if you die of COVID, it's a really horrible death. And she just shrugged her shoulders. And uh, I've hated Fox News forever, but I really, uh, I tell you, it sounds it's like really hard. it sounds like they're on the verge of killing your mother, Ronnie. Yeah, I know, I know. And unfortunately, a lot of my family feels the same way because they're all Fox people too. I'm the only lefty yeah. in my family. Yeah, uh, I get it. But Ronnie, I, I didn't Ronnie. know that Fox was doing that. So thank you for uh, enlightening me. At least it tells yeah. me why she's thinking that. Yeah, I, I totally get it. Ronnie, thank you. I, I wish you the very best, and your mother, too. It's such a sad story. Nick in Nashville, Tennessee, it says here you disagree with me. You go to the front of the line. Nick, what's up? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're talking about Trump is in it for the money. What other president do you know that's lost $2.1 or $2.2 billion off the net worth over the course of being in the presidency versus Obama, who gained 30 times his net worth when he took presidency? They're worth one. Well, yeah, Obama had a had a best selling had two best selling books and he made a few million bucks. I'll give you that. I didn't know that Donald Trump had any provable net worth. I mean, I, the the stuff that I've seen from the New York Times, from David K. Johnston, uh, and the leaked but verified Trump tax returns indicate that Donald Trump, when he ran for president, owed more money than he had in assets. That he was actually broke. Uh, what do you know that I don't? CNN, you can Google it. CNN ran a story. His net worth prior to taking office was, well, technically it's 2016, so I don't know if it was before office, but his first year in office was 3.5. 2015 was 4.5. And then on the article from CNN, who's not going to do anything pro-Trump, says he's down to 2.5 now. Well, they're the, reporting the, what he 19. is claiming then, um, because now, I can't imagine that CNN or any other news source would try to report what Trump's actually worth when Trump doesn't allow that data to be made public. It's so it's it's therefore not possible to report on anything other than what Trump is saying. So if he's crying in his beer and saying that he's losing money, you know, 
okay. <laughs> How did he lose that money? I mean, he's funneling people into his hotels. He's he's raised you know hundreds of millions of dollars that he's keeping in his own pocket here from from you know the suckers who follow him. Um, I, I get it that you know, across the hotel business people are losing money, and he probably has lost a fair amount of money on that. But what does that have to do with, quote, serving the country? That's the result of the coronavirus. That's got nothing to do with well, his, you know, his playing golf well, two well, out of three days that no, he was, that was in the White of, House. That was, as of, that was as of 2019, not 2020. But regardless, what other president in history do you know that did it without a presidential salary? Who did it and donated 100 percent of his salary? If he yeah, money, we've, that? we've not seen any receipts for those donations, Nick. Have you? I have not. No, I'm, I'm serious. Not, I don't have personal contact. To, to the, yeah, to the, to the best of my knowledge, you know, that was a lot of talk. Um, unless he gave it to the Trump Foundation, but he had to shut that down because they were convicted of fraud and all three of his children had to go to classes about how, how to run a nonprofit without committing fraud in exchange for not going to jail. All I'm trying to say is there are multiple politicians who gain net worth by going into office. Oh, I agree. Mitch McConnell's worth $25 million right now, and he was only worth $2 million 10 years ago. What's going on with right. that? His salary is 174000 a year. I'm with you. And it is, it is across the It should board. not happen. It is, it is not one side or the other. I, that's why, it, I, I mean, obviously I'm a conservative. Well, but I'll give you. I'll give you, Nick, there are some Democrats who have enriched themselves with public service. Absolutely. It seems like, though, Republicans actually celebrate it. You know, yeah, rich guy, it's a great thing. Anyway, Nick, thank you for the call. And and thanks for a civil conversation. I appreciate that. You know, every now and then somebody wants to disagree with me. They just go off and start swearing and stuff. And then I end up having to hang up on them and dump what they said. Nick, thank you. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows. 
Tom Hartman here with you. Linda in Eastern Pennsylvania. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind? The financing with the Trumps, they finally found a slush fund that has no end. They couldn't have the foundation anymore because they ran that illegally. So now they found a way to just get money and not work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Louise and I have a difference of opinion about this. Louise thinks that Trump is interested in power. I'm of the opinion that he's really only interested in money. I, I think that the work that goes along with having power is something that Donald Trump isn't interested in. He just wants to be rich. He's essentially a deeply and profoundly lazy man and would much rather play golf than do anything else. And so this is just all a scam to make money. I think he ran originally, well, we know, he, you know, in, a, in the primary, in his primary run in the Republican Party, that was a scam to make money, to, to squeeze more cash out of General Electric, NBC. And then, you know, he bragged about how he'd be the first president to make money on the presidency. He was, he is. I think it's all about the money. Louise thinks he's still into the power I think he only wants to use the power to protect himself from prosecution. But I guess that that could argue that he's in for the power, too. What say you, Linda? I think that the power just comes along with him getting all the money. Like, he's, yeah. the power feels good, but the money's what he wants. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to disentangle the two, but I, but I, think, I think you've nailed it. Thank you, Linda. Great to hear from you. Shelby in Albany, Georgia. Hey, Shelby, what's up? Hi, Tom. Good afternoon to you. I was calling because I wanted to talk about, I've been reading some exit and demographic reports coming out of Georgia, with Georgia being on the hot seat that the passage of these really Jim Crow-style voter suppression laws that are coming out of there. I wanted to talk about, wanted you to see what you thought about this context that Georgia has a combination of a majority of Asian, Hispanic, and black vote that now is really the majority vote in the five boroughs, but 10 counties really that surround all the way down to Fayette, which is Fayette is just just south of the first county north of Macon, Tom, and Mm -hmm. the further south of the airport in terms of the kind of excerpts where the pilots, the suburbia that is created into the excerpts there in in the Atlanta down from the the airport south. So I was looking at some data that Stacey Abrams' group, actually, with this lobby that we're doing up in Georgia, sent out so that we can see exactly what happened where you have white flight. Remember, Lucy McBeth won New Gingrich seat, 16 points. That seat had been in Republicans' hands for 30 years. Yep. So you've got now uh, Gwinnett County, Cobb, DeKalb, Fulton, Marietta, five counties of the 10 counties, as I shared, that go down to Fayette, McDonough, Henry, Clayton on the east, southeast, on the southeast of the Fulton Mm. perimeter. Those counties now have 30 percent black, 20 percent Hispanic and 13 to 15 percent Asian. Right. Which is more than 50 percent. Right. Yeah, that that's that majority that now produced that blue turn because Stacey Abrams actually got statewide 47 percent, whereby Joe Biden got 49 percent. He increased on Stacey's Mm -hmm. uh, total vote share in Georgia. And so this appeal of where Georgia was a white flight 
example of Georgia, because as you know, Georgia has Atlanta as really the only urban core in that state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shelby, and, we and just have 15 seconds to a hard break. Okay, What's the point you're making? That I think that this mantra that the national media projects that we're in trouble is simply a signaling that they're not doing any work to really reflect the emerging coalition that exists in America. And we just have to keep fighting. We're going to put pressure on the corporate and the places of business as to whether or not they will support this suppression. I've got it. I got it. Brilliant. Shelby, thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. What's the fate and future of the GOP? Kevin in San Pedro, California. Hey, hey Kevin, what's on your mind today? Hey, in the book, Democracy and Chains by Dancy McLean, she talks mm-hmm. about how the Koch brothers have a bigger political party than the Republicans or operatives, and that they see taxation as a way of theft. So when you talked about the constitutional amendment to get the votings passed, this is the problem, is it takes two-thirds of the states to ratify that. And right now, two-thirds of the states almost are in Republican hands. So I believe it's actually three-quarters of the states. It's two-thirds of the House and Senate and three-quarters of the states. But I, I get so, your point, Kevin. So this is why H.R. 1 is so important. Because if we get them to that three quarters, we're in a lot of trouble. They will start passing a whole lot of constitutional amendments that are going to favor more and more of the rich. Oh, they're trying to rewrite the Constitution, Kevin. There's a whole movement that, that, that has been funded by these right-wing billionaires. They've, they've had dress rehearsals for this every year for the last six or seven years in Washington, D.C., where they bring in people from all over the country. They just need, again, they need two-thirds of the House and Senate and three-quarters of the states in order to call a constitutional convention and literally take the entire Constitution apart and rewrite it however they want. And they fully intend to do that. They know what they're doing and they know what they want to do. And that's one of the major focuses of this you know, what Nancy McLean correctly points out, and Jane Mayer makes the same point in, in her book, Dark Money, that, you know, there are actually more people working for these right-wing billionaire-funded networks than there are within the Republican Party, and there's more money in those networks than within the Republican Party. And, and, and this is one of the schisms that isn't being discussed, by the way, Kevin, is how that network so far has been dancing 100% of the tune of Donald Trump. You just go to FreedomWorks uh, website and you'll see what I'm talking about. In fact, it's not a bad idea to get on their email list so you can see what they're up to. It's pretty surprising, frankly. But this is the direction that they're going to go. And what's it going to take for the billionaires to say, okay, Donald Trump is no longer our guy. He's no longer helpful to us. And then remember this. The reason they want to get rid of those 501c3s for churches is so that they mm-hmm. can run unlimited dark money through those churches. Right. Yeah. Well, you've got now churches setting up 501c4s that are, you know, essentially political action committees where people can donate to those instead of the church. I mean, it's it's 
all of these loopholes that the Supreme Court opened up with Citizens United and the two decisions prior to that, and McCutcheon since then, have just horribly corrupted our politics. But you're absolutely right, Kevin. This, you know, there's a long game here that these billionaires, these right-wing billionaires have been playing for some time, which is rewrite the Constitution, end democracy in the United States, turn America formally and officially into essentially a white supremacist oligarchy. And, uh, you know, they've already done that in a number of states, in my opinion. Kevin, thank you for the call. And thanks for listening to KPFK. We'll be back here on the Tom Hartman program, occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. Stick around. Hey, it's Tom Harbin. We're reading from A Dark Money, The Hidden History of the Billionaires Behind the Rise of the Radical Right in today's Tom Harbin University Book Club. This is from Chapter 11, page 271. The official opening of the 112th Congress took place on January 5th, 2011, when Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, handed off an oversized ceremonial gavel to her successor, John Boehner. But a new era of ultra-conservative billionaire influence had already begun. Before the public swearing-in ceremony got underway, David Koch, whose donor network had spent at least $130.7 million on winning a Republican majority, was in the new Speaker-to-be's ornate office chatting amiably with his staff. The People's House was under new management, and critics would suggest new ownership. While Koch was a very public presence on the Capitol, his political adjutant, Tim Phillips, the president of Americans for Prosperity, was deep in the inner sanctum of the congressional committee that mattered most to the bottom line of Coke Industries. Phillips's most important destination that day was the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which under the new Republican majority had now increased its power to block President Obama's environmental agenda in Congress. The committee could bury progress on climate change and harass the EPA for the foreseeable future. In Plutocrats, the rise of the new global super-rich and the fall of everyone else, journalist Krista Freeland describes how those with massive financial resources almost universally use them to secure politics and policies beneficial to their interests, often at the expense of the less well-off. In the United States, a number of studies have shown that in recent years, this tendency has distorted politics in very specific ways. In a study he conducted for the nonpartisan Sunlight Foundation, the political scientist Lee Drutman found that increasingly concentrated wealth in America resulted in more polarization and extremism, especially on the right. Very rich benefactors in the Republican Party were far more opposed to taxes and regulations than the rest of the country. He discovered the more Republicans depend upon 1% of the 1% donors, the more conservative they tend to be. The 112th Congress soon unfolded as a case study of what David Frum, an advisor to the former President George W. Bush, described as the growing and, in his view, destructive influence of the Republican Party's radical rich. The radicalization of the party's donor base, he observed, has propelled the party to advocate policies that were more extreme than anything since Barry Goldwater and his 1964 presidential campaign. It also led Republicans in Congress to try tactics they would never have dared use before, end quote. Hard data supported this. Harvard's Theta Scott poll found that the House took the biggest leap to the far right since political scientists began recording quantitative measurements of legislators' positions. There was no better example than the Koch's newly won influence over the House Energy and Commerce Committee. In the previous Congress, the panel had been chaired by Henry Waxman, a liberal Democrat from California, who had quarterbacked the House's successful passage of the cap-and-trade bill, only to see it die in the Senate. Now the new Republican leadership stocked the committee with oil industry advocates, many of whom owed huge campaign debts to the Kochs. 
Coke Industries PAC was the single largest oil and gas industry donor to members of the panel, outspending even ExxonMobil. It had donated to 22 of the committee's 31 Republican members and five of its Democratic members, too. In addition, five out of the six Republican freshmen on the committee had received outside support from Americans for Prosperity. Meanwhile, many of the new committee members had signed an unusual pledge swearing fealty to the Koch's agenda. They promised to vote against any kind of carbon tax unless it was offset by comparable spending cuts, an unlikely scenario. The no climate tax pledge was invented by Americans for Prosperity in 2008, and the Supreme Court cleared the way for the EPA to regulate greenhouse gases as it does other pollutants. The Koch's pledge was modeled on the enormously successful one that the anti-tax crusader Grover Norquist had used to intimidate Republican lawmakers from raising taxes. In this instance, it served not a cause so much as a company. By the start of the legislative session in 2011, fully 156 members of Congress had signed the Koch brothers' No Climate Tax Pledge. Many returning members of the House Energy and Commerce Committee had already taken the pledge, and of the 12 new Republicans on the panel, nine were signatories, including five of the six freshmen. A prime example of the symbiotic relationship between the Kochs and the committee was Morgan Griffith, who had defeated Rick Boucher in the district that represented Saltville, Virginia, and was among the new wave of appointees to the Energy and Commerce Committee who were openly indebted to the Koch brothers for their seats. Americans for Prosperity operatives were guests of honor at a victory rally soon after the election, at which Griffith gushed, quote, I'm just thankful that you all helped me out in so many ways, end quote. The Koch's investments soon paid off. Once in office, Griffith became an outspoken skeptic of mainstream climate science, drawing national ridicule for lecturing scientific experts as they testified before Congress that they needed to consider the possibility that Mesopotamia and the Vikings owed their success to global warming, and the melting ice caps on Mars showed that humans were not its cause on Earth. Republican, Congressman Griffith became a lead player in the House Republicans' war on the EPA, demanding that the agency be reined in. Within a month after he took office, he and other House Republicans gutted the EPA budget by a t- punishing 27%. Dark money, the hidden history of the billionaires behind the rise of the radical right, Jane May. What I find absolutely fascinating is this idea of what is Trump actually trying to pull off? Uh, Louise and I were just talking about this a minute ago. I, I mentioned uh, she was saying she thinks he wants power. I was saying I think he wants money. I, th- I think he's always been motivated primarily by money. Uh, we've had a number of callers say could be both, could be different dimensions of each. I think that's all true. But she's of the opinion that he's trying to make a political comeback, that he wants to be president in four years, or at least wants to be able to swing the party. And I think she's probably right to a large extent in this. He remembers when he had the power over Bill Barr to say, stop the investigation into me. Stop the investigation into Paul Manafort or Roger Stone. Stop the prosecutions. He was in control of the criminal justice system that is now coming after him. And he wants that control back. And then, to my argument, he's also now saying that he wants all the money. The Republican Party is a billion-dollar corporation, multi-billion-dollar corporation. And he wants that money. And frankly, I think it's beyond that. I think he needs that money. I think he is about as bankrupt as you can get. I think he's right back where he was in 1996 when he had to declare, he had to bankrupt six of his companies. I think it was 96. It was somewhere in in that time period. 
So what's going on here? I don't know. But I think the even the bigger question is, what is this going to do to the Republican Party? Typically, in the off-year elections, which would be 2022, next year, the party that is out of power gains seat in the House and Senate. That's usually what happens. Occasionally it doesn't happen, but that typically is what happens. And when it doesn't happen, it's usually because there's a reason. I think Donald Trump might be the reason this time that the Republicans don't gain seats. I mean, we'll see, right? Don't, don't count your chickens and all that. And don't jinx things by bragging prematurely. I'm very much trying not to do that. We'll see. And uh, James in Seattle. Hey, James, what's up? Yeah, good day, Tom. Uh, yeah, the, the gentleman that was on earlier that called himself a cynic, uh, I, I'm having a very difficult time with thinking that you would be so naive not to want to agree with him wholeheartedly, that the Republicans will think of themselves as benefiting from the more people that die with the Biden uh, and we don't get herd immunity. Here's the thing, James. Fox News needs viewers, right? I mean, they, they make most of their money. I, my understanding is they make much or most of their money on uh, fees from the networks. But, but ultimately, the network, you know, the, the, the cable companies, basically. But ultimately, those cable companies are going to stop carrying their channel if nobody's watching it. They need viewers. And plus, they sell product to viewers or they charge for advertising. So if they're going to make a business decision that is going to cause a large chunk of their viewership to die, that seems to me totally bizarre. It, it seems to me like, you know, completely counterintuitive. And, and that's why I'm scratching my head when I hear that, you know, Fox hosts are causing people to be skeptical of the vaccine and causing many senior citizens not to take the vaccine. You know, how does killing off their own people help them? I don't get it. Well, they're going to modify and, and, and appeal more to racists and, uh, and uh, bring them in. Uh, obviously, the old people are going to die anyway, so they have to have a business plan to modify in order to... So you see this as Fox's bid to, to pick up the young, white, racist, uh, male supremacist, white supremacist, well, that's, that's, uh, neo-Nazi nationalist vote? That sounds good. My wife and I, we were just coming back from picking up some groceries and I, we said to each other uh, on Fox News, uh, you know, do they have one gay uh, person, you know, and we couldn't be you know, not that we watch it, but we doubt if that person is there. Well, and they used to have so they, Shepard you know, Smith and he's gone. Right. So, I mean, the, the white racists, we, you know, there's a lot of white people in this country. And if we just move towards them, uh, you know, it, it's it's a good plan. And and to think that money and not that Fox News is the only money, but the other money, they really don't care. They're they're isolated from all this. And whether it's five hundred thousand that die or uh, a million that die. The same rich people made money on the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam East War. You know, it's 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 funny. Is the root of all evil? I mean, that. It's, yeah. No, you, I get it. I get it. James, you made your point. You made it very well, and I appreciate that. I do want to get at, at least one, and hopefully two more calls sure. in before the end of the show. So thank you very much for the call, Michael in Princeton, Minnesota. Hey, Michael, what's up? 
Yeah, Tom, I can't see the Republican Party surviving. I mean, first of all, you got Donald Trump uh, directing the money to him. Uh, mm-hmm. You got the Trump effect, which they're shedding. I mean, as many as 10,000 in one county in Arizona, a quarter of a million over a period of a couple days. Then you got the Biden bill that got passed. Then you got the suppression going on in the red states. And the ads that I've seen against that are phenomenal. So I cannot see the Republican Party surviving, uh, at least in, this, in the way that they are right now. I don't so know here's the question then, Michael. Do they go the way of the Whigs? I mean, do they literally get replaced by another party? Or do they simply go, you know, become a, a, a super minority party like they were from 1933 to basically the, the mid-1980s and just don't hold power? I'm expecting that there's going to be a split. I wouldn't be really surprised at all to see a third party. Yeah. Yeah. Well, time will tell. They're so divided among themselves. Yeah, I totally get it. Michael, thank you. David in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Hey, David, what's up? Hi. I don't think we're going to have equilibrium until Black Lives Matter or some group like that becomes a political party. Green Party. Well, what that'll do is split the Democratic Party. could do it. Just like the Green Party did uh, on a couple of occasions. The People's Party in the 19th century merged in with the Democratic Party in the 19th century to give us William Jennings Bryant and eventually led to FDR. Yeah, I think you you could build that case. Interesting. I think it is a movement. We'll be back tomorrow, same time, same place. Thanks so much for being with us today. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It really and truly isn't. It's not just a slogan. Democracy requires participation, and that means you. Without you, there is no democracy. So get out there, get active, tag your it, and spread the word about good progressive media. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and those around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.